Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome to Watchman's Talk, a series of conversations with Israeli security experts and practitioners. Our guest today is the retired Lieutenant General Danny Chalutz, the only fighter pilot to have commanded both the Israeli Air Force and the Israeli Defense Forces. General Chalutz took part in Israel's wars from 1967 on, and he uh, shot down three Egyptian and Syrian MiGs uh, on his way to commanding Israel's best, most important, and most prestigious arm in the military. He was also in charge of the uh, Air Force team uh, in the LAVI, in the Israeli fighter uh, fighter plane uh, project, which was later aborted. General Chalutz uh, commanded the IDF during the withdrawal from Gaza and during the Second uh, Lebanon War. Danny Chalutz, thank you for coming. Thank you. Welcome aboard. Thank you. We are uh, getting close to... um, uh, 2020 to the uh, end of the year. This was not a particularly uh, healthy year, turbulent, but it seems as if uh, security-wise, Israel is in a quite good position, isn't it? Yeah, it looks so. I think that the immediate uh, threat that we had in the past already disappeared. So uh, nowadays we are facing two main challenges. One is uh, terror, very active terror, if we can call uh, Hezbollah from uh, Lebanon as a terror organization, because they are semi-military organization almost. And of course, the threat of the Iranian developing a nuclear bomb in the future. To define future is very difficult. I remember my days when I started to be the Air Force commander in 2000. They told me that within two years, they are almost there. So those two years are equivalent to those two years starting now and will end in 22. So it's a constant. Uh, the Iranians yeah, are always yeah, yeah. a few years. Yeah, yeah. the same, same two years. So someone is succeeding in keeping this constant delay in their abilities. Do they really want uh, to pass, to cross the threshold, or is it better for them to be there on the brink uh, always? I think that they are looking for staying on the edge and uh, being able to do that once they will have their strategic alert that they need it. We have to remember that uh, Iran started to develop it against Iraq not against Israel. Israel was not their enemy when they decided about nuclear uh, project. Uh, but you know, enemies are changed. And uh, when we jumped to the front, they took us. Twice in uh, 1981 and then in 2007, a few months after you left office, the Israeli Air Force uh, struck uh, nuclear installations uh, in Arab countries, first in Iraq and then in Syria. So it seems as if the Air Force is the weapon of choice should the need arise for another such operation. But there is a difference between contingency planning and the decision to employ. And you have been there where decisions uh, have been made. 
how difficult will it be for the Israeli cabinet, based on the professional recommendation of the Air Force and the general staff, to uh, implement such an operation? I believe that the Iranian case is completely different from the Syrian one and the Iraqi one. First of all, geographically, uh, the targets in Iran are a lot far than the targets in Syria and uh, Iraq. Second, the nuclear project of the Iranian is spread all over Iran. It's, it's not a single point that when you are doing it, it's over. Third, we have to understand that when you, we are knocking down a nuclear uh, project, we are not knocking down the mines and heads that developed it. So uh, it it's becomes more difficult. Now, when it comes to Iran, we have to understand that there is a difference between one and single strike and a continuous war against the Inca, this country. Uh, for the Israeli Air Force, it's a challenge, but it's something that can be done. But I will not recommend to do it as long as we not have a must, an immediate need to do it, and to give this project for others to handle. Uh, I think that uh, there are few superpowers in the world that they should take responsibility over such a challenge. Uh, first of all, are the Americans. I think that uh, it's within their abilities and within their abilities to handle a continuous campaign uh, in distances that we, it's a lot more difficult for us to do. And not impossible, but difficult. Uh, the process that we are seeing lately in the Middle East, I think, which is, is, is delaying this, this operational option, not pushing it off the table, but delaying it. Uh, the fact that uh, the Emirates and then the Bahrain, and uh, I hope that Saudi will follow and some other countries there, is, is uh, facing a main, a main problem, major problem for the Iranian because uh, they are isolated. In, in some respect, they are isolated. Not physically, but mentally. Uh, looking around and seeing that most of the countries that were, in a way, part of the bloc are not there anymore is very helpful for the benefit of Israel, for the benefit of the countries that signing with Israel. As part of coalition warfare. As part of friendship relationship. Uh, which can be developed to various uh, routes, various approaches. Yeah, part of coalition in a way. E even if not military coalition, it's political coalition. Uh, and uh, international politics plays a major role in this campaign. In the race between offense and defense, uh, while you were um, Air Force Chief of Staff and then um, Chief of the General Staff, the um, Joint Strike Fighter was being developed and Israel got in um, on the ground floor and has F-35s now. It will also have um, a very developed air refueling capability, which will enable it to strike as far as Iran and back, of course. We want to have our pilots yeah, back with, with the planes. But at the same time, the Iranians 
um, are being equipped with uh, modern air defense systems, and they have uh, very thick bunkers or they're building their installations uh, inside caves or mountains. So in this game, who, who has the edge? You know, first of all, we have to remember that no physical obstacle ever exists if someone is deciding to uh, take it off. Not the Chinese wall, not the Maginot uh, line, etc., etc., etc. Or the Balev line. Yeah, or Balev line, yeah. That's first. Second, uh, I would say that from operational point of view, we have the responsibility to build the abilities to do whatever we are going to be asked by the, uh, gov the Israeli government. That's first. It doesn't mean that we are going to recommend, I'm not in position now, but if I would have been asked, I will never recommend to do it as something, regardless of the global situation and of course the regional situation. Uh, there are means to penetrate everything. There are ways to overcome the air defense system. So in this respect, I don't think that I have to develop it, but uh, everyone can understand that, uh, you know, it's just lately it was mentioned that uh, part of the agreements with the Americans is to be, that we are going to be equipped with a 15-ton bomb, the, the, the mother of all bombs. Uh, Okay, we are not looking for the mother, we are looking for the sister of those bombs, but uh, I think that physically it can be done. Did you rehearse it or simulate it uh, in a way that satisfied you, for instance, regarding casualties? Because in uh, earlier wars, the Air Force paid a very heavy price in uh, aircrew uh, being uh, killed, wounded and taken prisoner. Anyone will have the need to take such a decision, we'll calculate it. But in the same word, in the same sentence, I would say that casualties are not the leading factor to take decisions which are very critical to the existence of State of Israel. Uh, that the reason why we are serving, we served, why I served. And I don't think that any of my commanders thought about casualties first when he sent me to do what I did in Yom Kippur War, in the attrition war, etc. Uh, we have to calculate it. No doubt it has a moral impact if you are suffering from casualties or prisoners in, in uh, enemy countries. So not casualties. Uh, we have to think when we are taking such a decision, what will be the uh, revenge action of the other side? How long it will take, when it will take, and where it will be taken? And uh, we know from the Iranian experience that we did something and they retaliate in, in uh, Argentine, they retaliate in different places against civilian targets. And when uh, the uh, 
uh, Baghdad reactor was hit in 1981. In 1991, 10 years Absolutely. later, Saddam... Uh, launched his SCAD missiles. Absolutely. So we have to remember that when we are taking a decision. Saying that, I would emphasize that no, nothing will prevent us or stop us from doing something which is needed because it's crucial to the Israeli future existence. But how do you calculate this equation? When is it absolutely essential, no one else is doing it, diplomatic efforts have failed. What's the point uh, of no return? First of all, it's based on a long, long period of learning the enemy. That's first. Understanding the way he think about us, understanding how he's taking decisions, what is forcing him to take decision to retaliate once he is being attacked. Uh, and there is no formula. In the end, is a decision that made or based upon many factors that are, that the combination of all these factors brings you to the decision that that's the time. But General Khalutz, uh, we mentioned the uh, Six-Day War of 1967 and the Yom Kippur War of 1973. Yeah. There were no channels of communications with... Nasser first, and then with Sadat. Perhaps uh, some secret talks with these Egyptian leaders would have spared us these wars. Absolutely. And, uh, but we saw that when we have some uh, secret channels, it didn't prevent Hussein from joining the 67 war, and didn't prevent uh, Sadat to launch the 73 war. Uh, but you would recommend trying to I, have I, to have some talks with the Iranians. Absolutely. If there is a way to discuss anything with the Iranians, anything, starting from oil and up to uh, security issues, I would recommend, absolutely. I remember myself having some training in Tehran. As a, an F-4 as an F-4 pilot. Uh, so I want to imagine, to continue to imagine, to dream that those days will come again. So, so what is your position regarding the uh, JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which now under a Biden administration might get a new life, perhaps not in the same form, uh, perhaps a new improved version? I would say that trying to solve those issues in a peaceful way is completely a lot better because there is no good war. But there is an average peace. Uh, is there any enemy you would not talk to? No. No. With whom to talk? With the friends? Okay, we are talking with friends. The so need to talk is with the enemies to try to understand what is causing this kind of conflicts and to, to solve them. Any enemies, by the way, from Hezbollah in the north and uh, Hamas in the south and Palestinian in the, in the east and Iranian in the, in the far east. If there is a way <clears throat> to discuss, talks are delaying actions. 
that's first, and we have to understand it. And uh, unfortunately, in most of the cases, both sides are delaying their talks and prefer some, in some cases, actions. No, I, I prefer the other way around. As you mentioned, uh, you were appointed the Air Force chief uh, in the year 2000, uh, in April. And a few months later, uh, we had what is sometimes called the Second Intifada. It's not the proper term, but um, uh, let it pass. And uh, one of um, uh, your achievements as Air Force chief was to adapt the Air Force to this particular war to minimize rather than maximize force so that uh, you could hit terrorist leaders and not have um, civilians uh, being hurt with, with the moral implications, with the operational implications, legal, diplomatic, uh, and so. Was it difficult to get your pilots and, and your officers change the way they looked at their missions um, in order to emphasize this particular kind of war? First of all, when I entered to my position as Air Force Commander, April 2000, as you mentioned, I thought that we are facing a new era. Of peace. Of peace. And uh, five months later, I found myself in a big conceptual mistake, personally. Uh, yeah, I saw it as a major challenge to, to, to change the Air Force to be relevant to this kind of war. Because Air Force is not built to fight terrorism is not built to run after a single terrorist and targeting him. And we succeeded to do it. Uh, and I must say that the Air Force was, all, all levels of the Air Force was very cooperative because they understood that it's not a question of if we are going to be involved in this campaign, it's the question of our involvement in the future needs of the state of Israel. Let me ask you and about two, about two um, problems, perhaps two dilemmas, always facing whoever is building up a military force and you were chief of operations and then uh, deputy chief of staff and finally chief of staff, you handled these problems. One has to do with the general ratio of forces within the Israeli Defense Forces air, ground, naval, now perhaps cyber, intelligence, other needs. And the other has to do with the Air Force itself, perhaps without getting into too much detail, the manned aircraft versus the drone or unmanned aerial vehicles. Well, first of all, there is no question that uh, the main supporters of building the Air Force were land forces generals and not uh, the commander of the Air Force. Uh, they understood that they have a strategic mean in their hands and they need it. That's first. And that's the reason why the Air Force received relatively more budget in order to be equipped. I, you're not talking about close uh, support no, no, during no. ground operations? No, no, about Air Force as a power in the hand of the chief of staff and the, and the, and the government of Israel Quick reaction, long distances, short distances, because long are covering short as Versatile. Well. Very versatile, etc., etc. That's first. What we saw in those years that we have to move from men to unmanned vehicles. Uh, 
Uh, and the reason was that we, uh, first of all, cost. Second, the risks that you can take. Third, we thought and we still think, and I, I'm happy to hear daily that the Air Force continue in this approach, uh, all, all the missions that need long endurance, etc., are easier to be handled by unmanned vehicles. and Loitering vehicles. over the battlefield. Yeah, loitering, waiting, ambushing, etc., uh, it's better to do it with uh, uh, unmanned vehicles because from physical point of view, pilot cannot stay in the air 24-7. Drone can stay in the air 24-7. Second, uh, you can take more operational risk without risking your uh, manpower. But having said so, I think that the, the era of manned vehicles is not over. It's not over. In the end of the day, there are missions, there are uh, uh, capabilities that in the long future might be moved to drones. But in the current, in the current situation, in the short future, I don't see them moving to that because if you want to build the same capability, the drone be more expensive in some ways. But does it have to do also with men in the loop or the human decision-making or that could be transferred to, uh, to your headquarters? Some, some of it is a man in the loop, some of it. Uh, when decision can be transferred to the back, yeah, you can use drones easily. Uh, that's the main advantage of the drones. Uh, second, you're controlling drones. It's more automated kind of control uh, because the drone itself is not taking decisions. It's just carrying something here, there. It's fully controlled. Danny, we mentioned that you um, shot down three MiGs during your career as a fighter pilot. But um, for the last 35 years, since November of 1985, there has been no dogfight between Israeli Phantoms, F-15s, now F-35s, and Arab MiGs, Suhois, or now even Western aircraft, uh, which they have. How good is the Arab or Iranian pilot, and what will happen if eventually there is another such engagement? I will not grade them but I will grade the Israeli Air Force as one of the top Air Forces in the world in the, in the, the quality of uh, the training and the pilots and the air crews. It's not a only pilots. Along what other Air Forces? I would, in, in the front line, I would mention the Americans, of course. Uh, I would mention some European Air Forces. I don't want to insult anyone. So German, I uh, the Brits, the German, even the French, or uh, uh, we are. We, we started uh, around late nineties to train or to have exercises with foreign air forces, and we had the the, the ability to see how we are compared to, and we found that we are in. A, 
good place. Weren't you meeting or about to meet with your Turkish counterpart on 9-11? Um, and shortly thereafter, not because of 9-11, relations soured. Can Israel um, return to being Turkey's ally or the other way around? It's not a matter of the Israeli will. It's the matter of the Turkish will. Uh, I don't think that we destroy the relation. Uh, I would say in general, any country which is willing to have good relation with Israel will be happily invited, not by me, but the gov- by the government of Israel. But they have to understand that we are not to give up. We are not going to give up any of our essential needs to our future security. That without, without any, any leaks. So you are, um, in general, uh, for a territorial compromise provided that the Palestinian entity, Palestinian state perhaps, will be demilitarized and there will be no obstacle to the Israeli Air Force flying around the Middle East. That would include Lebanon, Gaza, of course. That's not the, the issue from my point of view. The issue from my point of view regarding the Palestinians is the Jewish nation need to be a Jewish nation. If we are not going to separate from the Palestinian, we are going to be a two-nation state. And that's the end of the Jewish state. That's my view. And not it not connected to territorial issue, to a Palestinian Air Force or the Palestinian Navy. That's not the issue. The issue is the existence of a Jewish state in this territory. Dari Khalutz, um a military man most of your life. Your son, too, was also a career Air Force um, pilot, author of Eye to Eye, available on Amazon and other places. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.